Everything is bigger in Texas, including climate change. But luckily, Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world gather to work with titans of industry to build a technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future. We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with leaders from the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I am Nada Ahmed. And this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. We're here with uh, Maciek uh, Lukowski. He is the VP of Strategy and Business Development at Emoji. Emoji builds technology that unlocks ammonia's potential as a clean energy source. And they're accelerating the global journey to net zero and sustaining future generations. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. And, and, and tell us a little bit um, about uh, Emoji's growth here in, in Houston. Sure. So, uh, you know, as a company, we, we started uh, a bit less than three years ago. Uh, the company started in Brooklyn, New York with four of our founders. Um, since then, we have expanded geographically, uh, first to Houston and Norway, then also recently to, to Singapore. Um, the headquarter of the company is still in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. but we're growing very quickly in, in Houston. And uh, we have also recently made an announcement about opening our first manufacturing facility. We're very proud to have it mm-hmm. not only in US, but, but here in Houston. Um, many of our team members have roots in Houston mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic place for growth. Yeah, and and you're you're making ammonia. I, I think it, maybe it's obvious why you got to make stuff here in Houston. But but I guess tell us a little bit about why the ammonia market and, and why that's a significant alternative fuel. Yeah, so I think it's becoming increasingly clear to um, various players globally that ammonia will be a significant part of our future as a low carbon fuel. Mm. Um, Ammonia is usually seen as a very cost-efficient and effective, highly energy-dense vector for hydrogen. Mm. So it's one of available ways for cost-effectively moving hydrogen, large volumes of hydrogen, from one place in, in the world to, um, to another. Um, what benefits ammonia mm. is that, um, you know, for many of low carbon fuels, we don't necessarily yet have the um, large scale storage and transportation infrastructure. For ammonia, we actually do have it because ammonia has been used for more than a century as a fertilizer. Mm. So ammonia is actually the second most commonly produced uh, chemical in the world. It's, um, uh, it has a global production of about 200 MTA, million metric tons a year. One way to think about this is it's about 40% of the global production of LNG. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also shipped globally. Um, there are roughly 150 vessels that can move ammonia around the world. About 50 of them are in dedicated ammonia service. So people have been doing this for over a century. That creates opportunities. And the opportunities now are twofold. First to decarbonize ammonia production, and that can be done through the green path with electrolyzers producing hydrogen and then turning that into ammonia. 
And the second one is through the blue path mm -hmm. that is using natural gas and then sequestering um, CO2 underground. Now, where Amogee is positioned in mm -hmm. this value chain is we're addressing the one aspect that has not been addressed before. That is, once you have this ammonia at the receiving location, how do you produce power from it? Mm -hmm. So what we offer is an integrated solution for taking ammonia and producing power out mm -hmm. of it. And it's all in a single box. Um, it's a really versatile technology and versatile solution that can be used for decarbonization of um, mobility applications, especially the, the big ones that are typically hard to decarbonize. Uh, maritime shipping, uh, long distance Hole, uh, mining, etc., and for decarbonization of the power generation applications. Mm. Um, and we have been addressing this for a while now. We have demonstrated our technology across increasingly large scale, starting with a small drone through mm. tractor, mm. Uh, world's first semi-truck powered by ammonia, mm -hmm. Uh, and now we're building the world's first vessel. It's a tugboat, so a mm. rather small vessel, but nonetheless, world's first vessel powered by uh, ammonia. So, you know, I think there's a lot of momentum in the market for ammonia. We see this even here. We spoke mm. about Houston before. Uh, you know, we see ammonia, blue and green ammonia production capacity uh, in uh, the... Uh, Gulf Coast region actually being approved, projects moving forward. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's a lot of momentum towards this. So, uh, to that end, uh, we're we're rather fortunate about about the timing. Yeah, I was curious because you know a lot of people talk about ammonia as like storage for hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about kind of the benefits of it being just used as a storage versus it being used as a fuel in comparison to hydrogen? Sure. So, you know, I think both of those um, benefit from uh, some of the same characteristics. So, for example, if you think about whether it's storage or whether this is fuel that's being transported and used at the NTS location, um, it certainly helps that this is ammonia has high energy density. It's actually about 30-40% higher than liquid hydrogen, uh, which is great. Um, it also helps that it's stored at um, very reasonable conditions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with hydrogen, you have to go into rather high pressures. Depends on applications, but for mobility, it's typically anywhere from 250 to 700 bar or very deep cryogenic temperatures, negative 250 Celsius, close to absolute zero. Uh, with ammonia, you store it in a very similar way to how mm -hmm. we store propane. Mm -hmm. So, either at moderate pressure, about 10 bar, or at low temperature, but not that low, roughly negative 35 degrees Fahrenheit, which is mm -hmm. about the same in Celsius. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it has been bo both uh, forms of storage have been implemented at a commercial scale. So when you think about this high energy density and low cost storage, it benefits both, mm -hmm. both storage and using it as fuel. Um, the way we think about this problem is, well, once you have it already in this very highly energy dense, easy to move around and store mm -hmm. form, why not use it as fuel? Yeah. Uh, so 
that's how we're thinking about this. And, you know, of course, it's um, various applications will choose different fuels. Mm -hmm. We don't think there's necessarily a, a need to use um, ammonia for applications where other solutions work perfectly fine. A good example of this would be passenger vehicles. Mm -hmm. I think this problem, you know, either mm -hmm. to some extent already has been solved with EVs. Uh, of course, you know, this will be evolving landscape um but there are applications like maritime shipping mm. where we don't currently have uh, other viable solutions mm -hmm. and if you think um for example specifically about maritime shipping which is one application we really like and that we're moving very mm. quickly in if you look at what the forecasts are uh by various third parties you know industry experts consultants uh, of course, in the future, we'll see energy mix and that space split between different types of solutions, different types of fuels. But most of these forecasts see the role of ammonia as anywhere between a third and two thirds of the total energy mix in mm. 2050. Mm. So, um, you know, I think there is there's a quite substantial role mm. for um, ammonia as as fuel. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is the way that we're pursuing, but um, you know, it's there are arguments that also make it make the use of ammonia as as a storage solution um, a, a viable one. Interesting. Hmm. And and what about you know you since you spoke about shipping and I have a little bit of background within shipping, how much volume is required on board a ship, um, you know, versus traditional fuel that's yeah. used on ships it's a great question you know i think we um with any low carbon molecules it just kind of goes into the physics of it you know the bond between carbon and hydrogen is a fantastic bond mm -hmm. from the energy density perspective so if you look at any type of fuel whether it's uh, ammonia methanol hydrogen um you know uh, fuels that have been uh, partially oxygenated, um, they all have lower energy mm -hmm. density compared to diesel or marine gas oil. Uh, so looking specifically at the numbers, um, we, uh, we would need about two and a half times mm -hmm. more fuel with mm -hmm. ammonia compared to diesel, assuming the same efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are ways uh, to increase the efficiency, and that's what we're doing, for example, by using fuel cells. Mm -hmm. So we actually crack the ammonia first and then uh, use conventional off-the-shelf fuel cells to, to produce electricity. Uh, but broadly speaking, I think that's something that you'll see with um, all, all of the alternative fuels, maybe other than, mm -hmm. you know, SAF, but I think bulk mm -hmm. of SAF production will be used for applications such as aviation. Mm. And, and I think one of the things that I'm curious about is, um, it seems like there are a lot of different applications and, and you're going all in on, on shipping, which seems counterintuitive to me, because I would, I would mm. assume there's, there's a big um, aversion to risk in that industry just because the capital projects are so big. But you're a strategist, so you know why you're going into this market <laughs> versus others. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about like, uh, why is this the entry strategy? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you, you made a very good point. Amoji yeah. uh, did not start with a mm. mindset of we're going to develop the systems for maritime industry. Mm. It's we sort of arrived at at that point over the the three years of our existence. We you know, we started by powering a drone mm -hmm. with with ammonia, and you know the idea was well, let's prove it that we can have much longer flight duration compared to drone powered mm -hmm. by batteries, and we kind of took it took it from there. Um, there are several reasons why we believe that maritime is the right segment. Uh, first of all, maritime needs a solution, mm. and maritime industry needs that solution now. So um, I think you'll see this across many different segments. Mm -hmm. um, companies tend to make commitments with 2050 timeframe. Yeah. Um, Usually these are net zero commitments. Uh, if you look at, for example, passenger vehicles, their lifespan is relatively short. Mm. So they may be on the road, you know, I don't know what the number is, but probably somewhere between five and 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, with maritime vessels, the vessels that are billing, being built right now, many of them will still be in service in 2050. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, typical lifespan is, uh, and you would know it better, yeah, I would but, say like 50, 60 years, yeah. Mm. yeah. So mm. that's why these mm. solutions need to be implemented mm. right now. And and we see maritime industry, which historically has been relatively conservative, moving in this direction uh, fairly quickly. Mm. Um, it certainly also helps that we have a supportive regulatory environment uh, at both demand and supply side. You know, at supplied is maybe something that applies to many other uh, hydrogen derivatives. Mm. For example, with with US, with the ITC, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sorry, IRA, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and the 45Q incentives mm. for mm -hmm. CO2 storage. But on the receiving end with Maritime, we have recently revised um, guidelines from the International Maritime Organization putting it at net zero by 2050, but also quite significant reductions leading to this. Mm, so mm. 2040 is actually 70% reduction in emissions. Yeah. And even 2030, you see that it's between 20 to 30% for greenhouse gas emissions and a target of 40 for, for CO2. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this in maritime, A, it's a transition that needs to happen now and needs to happen at scale with a scalable fuel um, and um, it's an industry that um, I think there's a broader alignment mm -hmm. that ammonia will be a significant part of the energy mix interesting it's um it's a good illustration of when there's a pain point there you know there, there's there are solutions that need mm -hmm. to be designed built and deployed yeah um, and I'm glad you guys are leading the charge. Mm. So. No, and I know there's immense pressure from the yeah. IMO um, yeah. and all shipping companies are working on their decarbonization yeah. plans. And currently there's no fuel uh, alternative available. Yeah. So a lot of them are investing into ammonia and looking into it. So there's definitely a big market. Mm. Now, you said your technology mostly focuses on converting that fuel, ammonia, mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. power. So could you tell us a little bit about how that technology works? Sure. So um, maybe to take a step back and look mm. at ammonia and mm. uh, potential mm. use of ammonia as, as fuel. Um, 
Part of the reason why ammonia hasn't been used as fuel until now is um, ammonia is very difficult to burn. <laughs> <laughs> the the range of flammability. So you know you uh, mm. need to get the mixture of ammonia and oxygen or air just right, mm. and even then. Mm. Um, during combustion process, for example, in an engine, the velocity at which the flame moves is very, very low. Mm -hmm. So that makes combustion of ammonia uh, rather challenging. Not impossible, but challenging. Um, also in the process, there would typically be some NOx emissions, which mm -hmm. requires mm -hmm. you to include additional uh, emission uh, reductions or capture of this NOx. Mm -hmm. So we looked at this process and we thought, well, there's probably a better way of doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so our system works on a different principle. What we do is that we take ammonia and then we crack it. Mm -hmm. So cracking is a process of thermocatalytic decomposition. Mm -hmm. uh, it's elevated temperature with a catalyst, but for our technology and one of the reasons why we can actually have our system being a fairly small package is that the temperature is much lower compared to uh, conventional cracking solutions. Mm. So once we crack the ammonia, instead of ammonia, we get a mixture of hydrogen and nitrogen. Mm -hmm. Nitrogen is inert, most of the air is, mm. is nitrogen. And then we have hydrogen. And you can use hydrogen really in any way that you desire. Uh, the the solution that we see as an advantage one right now is the use of this hydrogen with fuel cells. Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, conventional uh, PEM fuel cells that have been uh, demonstrated at the commercial scale that are commercially available and have been used in, in other applications. So what we offer to our customers is a um, complete solution mm -hmm. going all the way from molecule, and that can really be any form of ammonia, whether this is uh, compressed or slightly cryogenic ammonia all the way to um, to electricity. So we see the need of, you know, rather than offering subcomponents of the system to mm -hmm. offer a, a complete solution in a modularized fashion uh, that, you know, customer can take mm -hmm. and can say, mm -hmm. well, I want one box or, or three boxes or 10 boxes. Mm -hmm. And that way we can match electricity production to their demand. Mm -hmm. So hydrogen is a byproduct. Well, it, it's a it's a product, it's a of, the, product of the reforming process, reforming right? Process. It just pops out of yeah. the of the molecules, right? Correct. Essentially, correct. So what, ammonia yeah. is NH three, so yeah. it's for every one atom of nitrogen, yeah. there are three atoms of hydrogen. Hydrogen, yeah. And so you release quite a bit of it as you as you crack ammonia into nitrogen and yeah. hydrogen. And, and, you, I, and I guess the yeah. lucky thing here is usually with with methane, which is CH four, the carbon likes to attach to oxygen. And that's where yeah. you get your carbon dioxide, which is bad, right? Yeah. With with ammonia, the nitrogen likes to bond with nitrogen, which we know is just not really. Yeah. It, I, I assume it has no global warming potential because it's the air, <laughs> right. and that that's like one of the fundamental differences. And then it's inert, so you can you just have your hydrogen floating right. around in air essentially, right? And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And that's the beauty of ammonia is that there there are no tailpipe emissions. Mm. So if we can produce zero carbon ammonia and we can or very mm. low carbon ammonia we not only can mm. but it's mm. being done at a considerable scale uh then you know you don't have any meaningful emissions mm. uh mm. downstream of it other than of course you know if you're moving the fuel around mm. then mm. you know there there may be some emissions associated with it so mm. um yeah it's 
Ammonia is a very, very interesting molecule. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and I appreciate um, putting it into a fuel cell because um, this, is, this is like a nice mm. engineering exercise in some ways where it's the right solution for the right set of components. And fuel cells notoriously want very purified fuel streams. And so you're giving it to them just mm. as a natural part of your process. And, um, and, and that kind of begged the question of, you know, what's Wartzilla doing? Because they're kind of the big engine, one of the big mm. engine manufacturers. And I think you already addressed that kind of putting in um, like an ammonia as a fuel source is challenging because then you're going to have to put in like a NOx control system. Um, and I don't think mm. anyone wants to carry around extra def to, to do that like they would have to, you know, if you were doing like uh, on land um, you know, ammonia control. And so that, that ends mm. up adding complexity in other places where the fuel cell just makes it nice and controlled mm. and effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a very nice insight. And um, you can see why it's the right time and the technology mm. is there where really there's not a lot of risk outside of the the, re- the reformation process that you guys have. Um, yep. Yeah. And yeah. You know, where I, I think it's one of those cases where the stars kind of align yeah. between the market, the product, the timing. Mm. Uh, you know, of course, there's there's still a lot of work that that needs to be done. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Wordzilla, which is one of mm. the engine manufacturers. Of course, you know, the engines are in development too. And we um, we're really cheering for all the participants of the of the value chain because we um you know fundamentally we want to address the problem mm-hmm. and if if others can can help mm-hmm. can build even more momentum for the mm-hmm. industry to move forward and for uh, you know adoption of low carbon fuels to to increase we're we're very supportive and and very much willing to uh, to work with other circles the value chain. Yeah. Well, if you ever get an invite to the Wardzilla plant, you have to take me because I love engines. <laughs> I love big <laughs> engines. So I, I would love yeah. to see one of those. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so talk to us a little bit about the scale of ammonia that would be needed to transport, right? Um, and also the, um, in comparison to the ammonia we produce today um, for fertilizer use and the amount of ammonia we will have to produce to actually run the maritime industry mm. sure so um global production of ammonia today is around 200 million metric tons mm. uh, mta which i mentioned before is roughly 40 percent that of mm. of lng so it's mm. it's very sizable mm-hmm. um about 90 percent of that ammonia is converted into uh, various other chemicals are mm-hmm. uh, or, or used, let's call it, uh, without having to move it by, by mm. ships. Mm. But about 10% of this ammonia is moved in the form of anhydrous ammonia around the world and, and moved by vessels. So it's mm. actually very interesting. It's uh, some cases, these are the same vessels as LPG vessels. Mm. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, vessels carrying, um, uh, you know, C3 and, and C, C4, uh, sorry, C2 and C3 molecules. Mm-hmm. So uh, the infrastructure, there's some flexibility in terms yeah. of utilization mm-hmm. of infrastructure mm-hmm. between hydrocarbons and, and ammonia. If you think about the total demand that for ammonia that may exist um, the predictions are is that um, that global demand and correspondingly production will be probably somewhere around 600 mta by Mm -hmm. 2050 so Mm -hmm. increase by a factor of three Mm -hmm. 
And the interesting part there is, whereas currently bulk of ammonia is the end use of it is production of fertilizer, uh, the prediction for the future is that most of it will not be used as fertilizer, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. rather used as hydrogen carrier mm. or mm -hmm. as as fuel. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that we, you know, this is not a a vision of the future mm. only. This mm. is something that's already materializing. Mm -hmm. So we know that um, developed Asian economies, for mm. example, mm. Japan and Korea, already have in their energy policy mm. uh, the plans for utilization of ammonia. Mm. Right now, the first step is primarily, well, let's bring ammonia and mm. then co-burn it with coal because mm. that's the easiest to implement mm. from technology standpoint. Mm. Uh, but, you know, of course, there are more efficient ways of doing this. One way is to do it the way we do, but there are other mm. ways to, to produce electricity from ammonia that, you know, can be, can materialize in the future too. So the the momentum is really there. Mm. Um, I think what's what's really encouraging is that, you know, sometimes when you look in decarbonization space, it's a little bit of of chicken or egg question. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone knows that things need to happen, but there's always a question, well, what comes first? Is it supply? Is mm. it demand? Is it the infrastructure? Uh, who's going to take the risk? Mm -hmm. uh, what's beautiful about ammonia is that, well, the, the infrastructure largely exists. Uh, you have support on the production side. On the demand side, we have ways in which we can already ramp mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. this global trade of, of ammonia. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's one of these mm -hmm. cases where you know we can grow the solution mm -hmm. and proliferation of ammonia as fuel and as a hydrogen carrier fairly organically. It mm -hmm. does not need to be a, a step change mm -hmm. and it's a process that will really take advantage of mm -hmm of the solutions that that either already exists or are very uh, close from being commercially available, such as our system. No, and you've seen that already in the market, uh, the interest uh, not only from investors, but also from partners. So could you talk a little bit about that? You've only been around for three years and you already at closed your Series B round. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the company has been around for, for three years and we have been very fortunate to, to um, have a lot of support of our investors during this period. So uh, earlier this year, we closed our Series B round. Uh, that was $150 million. We have uh, so far attracted $220 million in, in capital. Uh, we have gone through our seed round Series A and, and most recently um, Series B. Uh, over this time, we saw a shift from you know, first the pioneering approach of trying to get the, mm. on a conceptual level, the technology right through, you know, working out some of the technology kinks and really getting our product uh, increasingly to increasingly mature stages. Uh, we have now entered some time ago a commercialization phase where, mm. you know, our focus is still on demonstrating technology in maritime application. That's why we're building the world's first ammonia part tugboat, one megawatt system. So, you know, at a reasonable scale. Um, but we are also beginning to um, think about, well, what comes next? So not only building 
the commercial product, but also structuring partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, we're fortunate enough to, to secure, having secured our, our first pre-orders for the commercial um, product. Um, and also thinking about how these products will be manufactured. So to that end, we are building the facility in Houston that will be opened in the in early 2024. Uh, it's roughly 50,000 square feet facility that will enable us to manufacture this uh, the systems at a fairly considerable scale. Mm. Uh, so I think we we really benefited from the momentum um, in the market and and uh, you know I'm fairly confident that we have the right product to mm. to address this need so uh, hopefully some of these announcements will will continue as we go mm. so so this facility in Houston will be actually making these modular systems correct what do you call them we call them power packs, power uh, packs. so these are um, what it is it's a box <laughs> it's a complete ammonia to power solution mm -hmm. and the scale of it is about 200 kilowatts mm -hmm. so one module has uh, a, a power output of around 200 kilowatts and then if you want more of these uh, units you know you can build them in a modular fashion kind of like uh, lego bricks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so one of the things I'm, I'm curious about and we'll kind of delve in a little bit into houston is i think uh, houston likes to tout that it's friendly to business and i'm curious what the what the search was like to identify a manufacturing facility i'm going to assume you're only looking at houston because i'm proud of houston but mm -hmm. like what did the did the city open its arms did you how did you find the right facility yeah so you know i think there are a few of us on the team that have prior experience from yeah. Houston um you know there's big reason for mm. why we moved here was just the wealth of knowledge available mm. uh, in the Houston area you know you have all of the um oil and gas companies mm. engineering procurement and construction companies mm. service companies utilities it's really you know, kind of a critical mass mm. and I think we saw reflection of this critical mass and some innovative thinking in the form of all the startups mm. that mushroomed in in Houston over the last few years mm -hmm. um, but it's it also is a, a very important factor for why we chose mm. Houston as a as a location you know of course we're building hardware we mm. need great chemical engineers mechanical process uh, technologist uh, EHS staff technicians mm. um, the availability of knowledge mm. people that you know have been rigorously trained mm. in well-established industries is was a very big factor of of the decision and of course you know it it certainly helped that uh, we're able to find the the right facility mm. I think perhaps what's very telling about the transition that is happening in Houston as well as globally uh, is that our facility used to serve as an oil field services mm, mm, uh, mm. facility for uh, for one of the major providers. Mm. So now, now it's going to be repurposed uh, and and uh, quite significantly re-engineered for our our purpose, uh, but it's. Now we're we're really excited to see the transition mm -hmm. that's happening in in Houston, and you know, of course, you see 
you see the transition in terms of names of companies mm. and announcements, etc. What we're really excited about is people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, seeing the appetite and the drive within our team members, many mm. of whom come from conventional energy mm. uh, companies, uh, appetite to build something mm. and appetite to pursue something in decarbonization or low carbon solution space. Uh, it's it's really, really encouraging. And Houston has a lot of that energy. Mm-hmm. Wait, I don't know if we said it before. Where, where is the facility at in Houston? So it's uh, northwestern Houston. It's okay. in the Jersey a village area. Okay, yeah, big mm-hmm. corridor for oil field services. One of my mm-hmm. first offices was up there. Mm-hmm. It was an, my, the one I was in was an old um, Schlumberger building, mm-hmm. but they're just they're just sprinkled out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. No, we're glad that you're here, and we would agree that Houston does have the best talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for what you're doing. Um, but, you know, the company started off in New York because that's where you're headquartered. And I've heard that, you know, New York has an amazing startup ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, second only to Silicon Valley. Um, but, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey personally, where you started off, how you ended up joining Emoji, um, and then how Emoji has taken advantage of being in New York. Sure. So my personal journey actually took me through both New York and Houston, Mm. uh, which was exciting. And and I personally love both. Um, You know, I started as an engineer. Mm. I was trained as an engineer first in Poland. Then I became very interested in geothermal energy and Mm. Iceland was the right place to do this type of work. So uh, I went to grad school in Iceland and Sweden. Came to US to to do my PhD in chemical engineering. Um, pretty much all of it around renewables, geothermal, solar, battery storage. Later on, um, uh, grid grid operation and demand response. Funnily enough, I, mm-hmm. I worked on ERCOT at the time, mm-hmm. um, and from there I um, started or moved to the industry to a large oil and gas company, starting in engineering roles. Uh, LNG, uh, hydrogen, ammonia, uh, flare gas mitigation. Um, but I always had some craving for the commercial side of things. So you know, got first exposure to it through through business development and then uh, ended up on the mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. side, which you know I highly recommend to to anyone. It's a really nice way to um, to to balance the view between technical and commercial. Um, and from there, I, I joined Amogee. Mm-hmm. I've been with the company for about a year and a half, so roughly half of, of uh, the, the time that um, Amogee has been around for. Um, and during this time, the company has grown from about 50 people to mm-hmm. over 180. So we have experienced quite a significant growth. It was really fascinating mm-hmm. to see it from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, we we uh, started in New York uh, at uh, a um, startup incubator called New Lab. Uh, our headquarter is is still there in in New Lab, and we take a, a, a good portion of of the space. We have received a lot of support from them early on. Mm-hmm. It's really the company started with one desk, then it was four desks, and then uh, we we grown from there. But you know, I think. It's uh, here in Houston, we have Greentown Labs, mm. and I think environments like this are really, really important for 
um, enabling this this environment to thrive. It's uh, you know, of course, what we're trying to do right now is not easy. It mm. never is until you're a mature company with you know uh, a significant revenue and a strong balance sheet. Uh, but I would argue that it's much more difficult to to start it mm. than it is to go through this more mature phases. So you know, having mm. places like in Houston, Greentown Labs or or New Lab in, in New York is is really really important. Mm. I'm I'm so curious on the kind of mechanics of scaling up that many people because on the one hand I'm like that means you're adding like three people or two or three people a week it seems and. Uh, I'm very curious how you keep everyone kind of pointed in the same direction. And I'm, I'm just imagining when we used to onboard people, we'd have to make like a whole like six week plan and we'd have to like give them all these materials. And I'm thinking, man, every manager had to do that. And it was hiring once a quarter. I mean, it's important because you need people to do the work, but I could see that um, if you don't get it right, it could be very challenging. Um, so how have you guys done it right? I think what worked really well for us is that we hire for personality. Mm. We hire um not only innovators but mm. we hire really good collaborators mm. and i think if if you have a team that works really well together you know where uh, people's hearts is in the right place mm. and they can prioritize uh things kind of tend to fall into the right places mm. you know of course it's it's never easy to to grow at this rate across mm. multiple dimensions because it's you know it's the technical and R&D and manufacturing, mm -hmm. safety, commercial, etc. Uh, but we, uh, you know, we, we have been, I think, reasonably successful in this. Um, being in Houston, mm. of course, gives you also access to the talent pool. Mm. We've been very fortunate to be also able to attract some of this engineering mm. talent into, into our offices in, in New York. So, all of this growth is is not within without a challenge. You know, it mm. requires commitment. I believe that we still have uh, about twenty open positions mm. at our website. Mm. So, you know, to any of our listeners, if <laughs> this line of work is interesting to you, please please connect and yeah. and look at the opportunities. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 not trivial, but I think if your heart and mind are at the right place, then uh, it's it, it's it's very very manageable. Yeah. And and I, I want to ask, I guess, a little bit um, when you, you find people are coming from traditional energy, I think there's always a concern that maybe they have to reskill. Do you find that like uh, where a lot of your candidates are coming from, are they coming from traditional energy and, and, and do they need to upskill? You know, I there's, of course, a new mm. skill set that's required. Uh, I don't think this is a significant barrier. Mm. Um, what we're seeing with our team members who came from more traditional energy, who joined from traditional energy backgrounds, is that uh, you know they really have a rigorous way of thinking mm -hmm. about things, mm -hmm. um, mature approach to engineering, to uh, process and product management, mm -hmm. and the right mindset about safety mm -hmm. too. So uh, you know I think. There's a large pool of uh, people who have that technical skill set. You know, you look at, for example, oil and gas companies. It's in terms of training and and the knowledge. Uh, it's they're really some of the 
best training mm -hmm. grounds out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, you know, some of these people have appetite maybe for um, a little bit more commercial risk because mm -hmm. startup will always include more of that, but also seeing the impacts of your work immediately, being able to build something with your own hands. And I think also gaining expertise that is increasingly valued in the mm. market. Mm -hmm. I think it's there's a general consensus that we'll need to decarbonize. Mm. Uh, and you know these opportunities are there in terms of job right now, jobs, but they will only increase and increase. And mm -hmm. um, so you know I think it's a it's a very much a, a mutually uh, beneficial opportunities for people to do perhaps what some of them really want to do, but also for for us to you know get get team members who who have this very solid uh, background and understanding. So you've been around for three years, and if my calculations are correct, then you started off during COVID. And the three years following COVID hasn't been great for venture capital, mm -hmm. I would say. And you're one of the companies that I've seen, it's an industrial company, you're trying to build an industrial solution, and has been quickly able to get the funding that you need, go from like concept phase to demonstration and be where you are today. What do you think worked in your advantage? What did you guys do differently? Mm -hmm. You know, it's... Uh, Other than hiring the may, right people. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it may sound like like cliche, but I, I, I think it's really, A, you know, do you have the right solution addressing the right market? Mm -hmm. uh, what mm -hmm. we're seeing with with Ammonia is that the, the potential is tremendous mm -hmm. and the solution wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So that certainly mm -hmm. helped. We um we have done our fundraising throughout times that were you know very very attractive and our Series mm. B most recent, mm. arguably earlier this year at the time when you know the the market has mm -hmm. uh, gone down. Um, I think the the story behind success is right mindset. Mm. Um, you know, really really collaborative team. I'm. Um, I'm still amazed by our team and just seeing, you know, how, not what we work on, but how people work, mm. uh, how they collaborate together. And that, um, you know, of course, you see this every day when, when you work uh, within the company, but it's, it creates a little bit of a halo effect mm. that I think is discernible to, to the investors too. Um, so that that certainly helped. Uh, you mentioned COVID. Mm. Uh, COVID has been such a period of ups and downs, you know. And we saw this, of course, uh, with with electricity, especially mm. here in Texas, with oil, um, but also you know all of the natural gas derivatives, including ammonia. Ammonia mm. is being decarbonized now, perhaps mm. faster than any other molecule, but it's still. Um, uh, to a large extent, same like hydrogen mm -hmm. produced from uh, from natural gas. So uh, you know the the volatility in the market has been pretty mm. significant. Mm -hmm. So I think it's one sense um, perhaps not the easiest period. Uh, in other ways, it's great great training ground. Mm -hmm. You've seen the highs, you've seen the lows. Uh, hopefully, you know most of the time in the future will mm -hmm. not be 
pushing this limits again, but mm. we'll be somewhere in between. I'm actually a little curious in some ways about the next round. Mm-hmm. And because you're you're at this fun phase where you're starting to, you know, you said you have uh, commitments for pre-orders. You're starting to make stuff. Um, that means real revenue. It means a different stage mm-hmm. of life for the the company and a different view from from investors. And I guess, uh, I, I don't know if in your perspective, you're able to see, like, are you starting to cater to more of a private equity investor? Um, or and, and So let's start there. Yeah, so we um, we certainly have seen this throughout MH's journey, you know, with the early capital coming mm-hmm. from um, VCs. Mm-hmm. Later on, you know, with significant portion of strategics, and then in the last round, you know, some early indicators of other profile of investors, mm-hmm. asset management mm-hmm. companies with, let's say, more of a financial perspective um than uh, you know strategics that see look mm-hmm. uh to a larger extent at the fit of that startup into into their own operation so um you know for us it hasn't been a step function it mm-hmm. has been more of a gradual transition uh, but you're absolutely right you know i think the company is Again, moving from technology development to technology deployment, uh, certainly more focus on commercial side of things, um, you know, key focus on commercialization and product rather than just technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and most certainly Series C will have a, a bit of a different flavor compared to to Series B, mm-hmm. but you know, we also anticipate that that always to be the case. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm curious. Um, everyone always has questions about IRA and how it gets implemented, and um, you're going to be living it. And and at some point, that that really impacts the financial model. I mean, how does that change? Uh, I guess frame your thinking about the actual deployment of the technology. Mm-hmm. So the way in which the primary way mm-hmm. in which IRA affects us is indirectly through our customers Mm, mm -hmm. so you know our customers most of them are currently using diesel Mm -hmm. or marine gas oil Um, they want to transition to a low carbon fuel but of course you know the the economics are largely Mm -hmm. driven by the cost of fuel itself Mm -hmm. so having lower cost fuel is is of tremendous advantage right now we see a lot of momentum in the u.s for Mm -hmm. uh low carbon ammonia production and that comes you know smaller projects are Mm. green projects that's typically of the order of um, 20 30 thousand tons per annum so 20 30 kta Um, there's planned next phase which will be more of a scale of Mm. 1 million metric tons a year so these are like truly global scale facilities but in the meantime what's really interesting what's happening is we see the existing ammonia plants Mm. decarbonizing Mm -hmm. so we see uh, carbon capture and sequestration uh, plants being implemented uh, to to make blue ammonia Mm. and the uh, impact on of IRA on ammonia it's actually really interesting i i sometimes say that you know it it gives more benefit to ammonia molecule than it does to mm-hmm. hydrogen mm-hmm. molecule and that's because if you think about it from the point of view of production that's one thing 
But if you think about it from the point of view of end user, mm. what they see is the delivered cost of fuel. Mm. Mm. So if we think about ammonia, well, most of the cost is on the production side. Mm -hmm. So any incentive that we can get to production of ammonia translates quite directly mm. into uh, the uh, cost of the delivered fuel. So I think that's mm. why IRA will have such a tremendous impact. Mm. And on IRA, we have uh, you know the incentive for hydrogen production, which is, I think most people agree that for uh, blue hydrogen, it varies depending on how much carbon you store, but it should be around a dollar per kilogram. Mm. For green molecule is around three. Now, if you think about ammonia production costs, where really 90% of the cost is embedded with hydrogen and mm. very little of mm. it is required to pull nitrogen from the air and combine it with, with hydrogen, really any incentive that you get mm. on the hydrogen production side mm. translates onto ammonia production cost. And that in turn, because of low cost of transportation and storage, translates well into the cost of the delivered fuel. Yeah. Um, so that's why IRA and and 45Q are are such a such an important um, uh, legislations for mm. for ammonia production and from our perspective also ammonia use. Got it. I can see why you're excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> it shows, right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, let's see. I guess uh, we're, we're kind of uh, running low on time. Um, I guess. We talked a little bit about coming to Houston. You you've been personally traveling to Houston, um, I guess once once every month or so. Um, what what's been drawing you here? Uh, where you're kind of proud of how the the innovation ecosystem has evolved? That's a leading question. It is a leading <laughs> question. It is very much a leading question. <laughs> yeah. So you know, of course, um, with such a big part of company's operations here uh, there's a very good reason for me to mm. to be here and you know from Amage's perspective it's it's the talent mm. it's the it's the momentum mm. in Houston I would say especially on on the people side mm. uh I do have a soft spot for Houston I spent five years here mm. and uh you know, I I still miss Houston mm -hmm. uh, food scene, and mm. uh, you know, having. Can you find good Polish hold it, food? Hold on a second. Time yeah. out. You're yeah. in New York. Yeah. Isn't it? Like, I can't imagine you're competing New York and in Houston. Houston it's, they're just food? different. They're yeah. just different. Both yeah. are fantastic. Okay. Yeah. I think Houston is is highly underrated. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, Houston. I think food scene in Houston is fantastic, and you know, it's it's such a versatile city. Mm. Do you find yeah. good Polish food here? You know, I never actually tried. Uh, mm. I'm sure. I'm sure it's there. I can actually think of one one restaurant that's in the KD area. Mm. Uh -huh. uh, I love the priogi. Oh yeah, from Poland. Yeah. 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 I don't think it's perhaps as well represented here yeah. as uh, as it is in New York. Uh, okay. And um, yeah. I'm really hoping that some of our listeners will correct me <laughs> and will mention a few good places, and mm. then I can go and visit them. Sorry, I uh, no, that's got okay. You got too food. excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I guess one of the things I want to go back to on the talent, because you've been here before, do you, do you think there's a like a shift in in sentiment towards uh, to how people think about climate and the energy transition? I think so. Um, 
you know, I tend to see mm -hmm. things now through the lens of a startup mm. and my exposure is primarily to a startup environment. So as I have made my personal mm. journey, I think I'm seeing more exposure to it too. Places like Greentown Labs mm. are, you know, really moving the needle mm. for the local environment. But I think it's, um, it's not only the innovation environment. Mm. You know, I remember when I was still in, in um, the oil and gas industry and we have made this transition that occurred in most mm. oil and gas companies from uh, teams devoted to uh, lower carbon solutions mm. and technologies being very small, mm. sometimes even single digit, to now some of these teams in, in major companies being of the order of hundreds of people. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, if you think about the pace at which this transition Hmm. occurred it's it's really spectacular hmm. especially if you overlay this with hmm. you know the timing the COVID, the hmm. uh, let's say more focus on capital efficiency and and strengthening the balance sheets within this period it's uh, you know if there's one observation that really speaks to the pace of energy transition uh, i think to me this is the hmm. one hmm. Mm -hmm. um I'm curious. I see so you're talking about your your own journey. Have you ever had your own climate impact uh, story? Throughout my time in this space, um, several times when mm. you see a solution and you just know mm. that like this is going mm. to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I remember when I was in grad school and I worked on um, low carbon refrigerants. Mm. Uh, realization that the refrigerants that we use in uh, air conditioning systems in automotive vehicles contribute about 1% to global warming. Mm -hmm. It's actually not that difficult to replace them. Right. Um, then, you know, working on uh, the um, demand response mm. in, in electric grid, which was interesting, it was actually here in mm. ERCOT, I remember finding out that you know, there, especially in Texas, we have these peaks in energy demand. Mm. At the time, there was this program that really incentivized the customers to reduce their electricity demand during only four short periods during the year. Mm. I think it was of the order of four times 15 minutes. Mm. And what we found out at the time is that, well, if you can... Uh, basically reduce your energy demand in this case we looked at data centers during this period of time you not only can really help an electric grid not use some of the most carbon intensive resources uh, and maybe power plants that are fired a few times mm. a year you could at the time reduce the cost for the end user by somewhere between five and ten percent mm. mm -hmm. So, which was, you know, for industrial scale facilities, really, really interesting. So, you know, I think there were a few cases like this, but what one feature that mm. all of these cases had in common was a, this was a scalable solution. Mm -hmm. And I think that also links really nicely to, to startups, because what, what we tend to do is mm. identify the solution where maybe, you know, you move the needle by a lot or by a little, but the size of the problem mm. is so significant that even if you move it by mm. a little, 
the end result is still uh, very, very high. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so as we're coming to the uh, to the end, I mean, there's, this was such a great, um, informative podcast. Mm -hmm. um, what is one thing our audience could support you in your goals? Great question. You know, I think um, our goal is to decarbonize mm -hmm. the industry and, uh, you know, the heavy-duty transportation, maritime power generation. It is very clear that this is not, you know, it's not a problem that can be solved by our company alone. Mm -hmm. To that, we need help from customers, uh, uh, financing institutions, from shipyards, from uh, uh, maritime naval architects, integrators, really across the full value chain. Um, so, you know, it is a solution that will have to be implemented across the full value chain and i think that's uh that's how you really drive the distance now i know that not mm -hmm. all of our listeners work in this space so um you know i think it's really important that all of us do what they can do mm -hmm. uh as i mentioned again if if uh there are listeners that are interested in this this line of work please connect with me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, on linkedin or through a different channel and uh, we would be more than happy to to have this conversation. Yeah, is LinkedIn the best way for people to follow Emoji? LinkedIn is great. Uh, we we do post quite a bit on mm -hmm. LinkedIn. Um, we also, you know, our website is is fairly informative. We recently published some white mm -hmm. papers there as well uh, that I think provide a fairly good um, overview of the industry and it's a. It's not only our view; it's more of an independent mm -hmm. third-party view. So, uh, but LinkedIn is is great. We uh, that's that's the primary channel that we use for interacting with uh, with others in the space. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. We're yeah. excited to see thank what the you. next year holds. Um, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you and so we'll much. Look the, forward was, to having you back. This yeah. was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.